Mother's Day. This is going to be one for the books, right? We're all going to remember the Mother's Day of 2020 when we had to do it behind a mask and uh, on Zoom or whatever that we had to do. Uh, like, like I said before, I really hope that you mothers out there have a chance to really connect with your families in a meaningful way, whatever it happens to be, and uh, that we can move through for this so that Mother's Day 2021 will be very different and, and back to full connection. One thing that has really shown me through this lockdown is just the importance of human touch. I mean, my gosh, you know, just uh, I'm going through hug withdrawals here, you know, and used to shaking hands and hugging and staying apart and elbow bumps just don't quite do it. So it'll be nice to be able to get back as soon as that's safely possible. But right now, Mother's Day, um, I had a conversation with a, a woman uh, just a few days ago, and uh, she sent me an article that uh, she wanted just to get my take on. And it was the article was about um, the dangers of reopening and how infections spread. And, and she, this really worried her and worried her about the, the reopening and what that's going to do. Uh, she's worried about the virus itself, catching it herself, but also spreading it, especially to her family and, and to anyone else. And there was just a lot of fear there as she was talking. And I was asking her about that. Um, you know, how much fear does she really have? And she says, well, there's a certain amount. And then she asked me a really interesting question. She asked me if uh, anxiety and worry was the same as fear. That was a good question, I thought. And so we talked about that. My take on that is is that anxiety and worry are forms of fear, certainly. They're, They're byproducts, I suppose, of fear, if you want to look at it that way. And actually, every negative emotion that we have If you drill back down, it's always going to lead to some form of fear. So it's always fear that is driving. And so for her, how does she deal with the the anxiety and the worry and the fear that, you know, she's already doing everything she's supposed to be doing. She's already doing everything that she can do in terms of safety procedures and following guidelines and and distancing and and quarantining and all that. And I said, at some point, you just got to say, I've done everything I can. It's got to be enough. Let it be enough. And then see if you can let the worry start to slide down the other side. Trusting that what you've done and, and the, the conscientiousness with which you bring the safety is going to be enough. And it em- emphasized to me the importance of why we stress this contemplative life. Why that this spiritual way is so critical to our fear level, critical to the to the way that we deal with crises in our lives and really deal with every instance and every relationship in our lives. 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. That's one of the, 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 the signature lines in the New Testament. Perfect love casts out fear, which is why following this way that Jesus was talking about, following the spiritual path, that if we do as Jesus did, will lead us to a truth that will make us free Free from what? Well, free from the fear, free from the anxiety, free from the worry. Why? Because we're going to meet a truth along this way, and that truth is the love, this perfect love. Love is the truth, the bedrock truth of everything. When we have glimpsed that, when we've had a chance to experience that, things start to change. Sometimes in spite of ourselves, you know, things are changing, our attitudes are changing. And so the question becomes, why, for so many of us, 
who know that God loves us, who profess that God's love loves us, whose faith is built on the premise of God's love for us, why is there still so much fear? Why is there still so much anxiety? Why is there still so much worry? Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you afraid? Uh, as you go through this crisis or any crisis in your life, you know, as I've been thinking about this in the last few days since this conversation especially, but in general, it has everything to do with how we view God. How we view God is going to define the way that we view this love of God that we say is there for us. And love can mean many things in our culture. It means many things to each one of us and probably means something different to each one of us. And some of these ideas about love are not so reassuring, just like our views of God are not so reassuring. There was a real revealing question that was asked to me a few years ago. And a woman said, you know, I know that God loves me, but how do I know if God likes me? Have you ever asked that question before? How do I know if God likes me? And what's the difference between love and like, right? Why, why is this such a huge question to ask for each one of us to, to really define this for ourselves? Because liking, unlike sometimes love, really implies affection. It implies a delight and a pleasure taken in the beloved, or the, or the one that you like at least, right? It reflects a desire to be with, this sense that you just can't wait until that person's here, that you're going to have more fun when that person's here. It's a playful sort of attention. It implies all of those things that love doesn't necessarily, as we look at it as a decision, as a choice, doesn't necessarily imply. The things that liking implies are things that we can see. They're visible to us. We can experience them. They're things that are transferred to us. It's the look in the eyes. It's the smile. It's the availability. It's all of those things that we can feel, that we can trust. Because let's face it, sometimes love, especially as we understand it, can be invisible. I mean, just take a moment right now. Maybe even close your eyes, wherever you are, and think about someone you really like. Can you picture a person? Maybe it's your dog. Maybe it's your cat. Someone you really like. Maybe you can think about someone who really likes you. Either way. But think about that person. Have that person's face right in front of you now. Think about how that person makes you feel. Think about how you always want them with you. That celebrations are better when that person is there how that person makes you laugh, how you can kid around, how you understand each other, how you feel safe with that person. That's a very specific feeling. Once we understand that, then we can start to understand how in Scripture we are commanded to love. And we're commanded to love even those people that we don't like. They're called enemy in the Scripture but we're not commanded to like. I defy you to go anywhere in the Bible and find where we are commanded to like our neighbor as ourselves. No. Love, yes. Like, no. Why? Because liking is not under our control. We can't be commanded to like because we can't manufacture that. It's not a decision. It's something that happens to us. 
I always use this, this uh, analogy. Hopefully it works for you. I don't like broccoli. I don't know why I don't like broccoli. It's just something that for as long as I can remember, I've never liked those little tree-looking things and the way they stick in your teeth and the way they taste. You know, I just don't like broccoli. I love bacon. Bacon's all right. Yeah. I didn't have to be taught to like bacon. There's some people I naturally like, you know, and there's some that I naturally don't. My goal is to treat everyone the same, but the ones that I like, that feeling that you were just going through with your eyes closed just now, all of that comes to bear. It's very different. We know that God loves us, but does he like us? Does he have that feeling about us? Is he in that same place where he can't wait for us to be present to him? Is it a party for him when we are present to him? Do we have that kind of connection with him? That's really what we want to know. It's why liking is so precious, because it can't be coerced in any way. When it happens, it happens. Now, we can allow it to happen by opening up our hearts to another person, but still, it's not something that we can manufacture or something that we can do. So if we know that God loves us, why do we doubt that he likes us? We doubt that God likes us because we haven't experienced his liking of us in any way. If you haven't experienced it, how in the world are we going to know if there's really affection there, if he takes pleasure in us, if he delights in our, in our presence, if we haven't experienced it? And why would we not have experienced it? After 2,000 years of Christian tradition, after everything that we have been through in our own personal journeys, I want you to think about the fact that we so focus on God as Father. We focus on God as Father. And inevitably, we have associations with our own human Father that we then attribute to God. The relationship that we had with our Father in our family of origin, whether biological, step, or adopted, or any other way, is just naturally going to get translated to God as Father. Now, if you had a really good relationship with your dad, that's a good thing. If not, then not so much. But either way, there is a connotation about fathers that mothers don't have in terms of the way that they love. We associate these things. And is there any way that Scripture can help us to get a different view of God that's going to start bringing into our experience that God actually likes us, that there is something else about this relationship, this love that we might have missed. Now, on Mother's Day, this is something that I like to do every single year because I think it's something that we need to be reminded of. Mothers love differently than fathers. Am I going to get any real debate about that? Mothers love differently. We know that. We, it, hopefully, we've experienced that. I know not everybody had the mother's love that we are talking about, this kind of unconditional love the kind of love, you know, when they say that this child has a face only a mother could love, that kind of love that sees through any of those flaws, any of those inadequacies, and just accepts and loves. If you didn't have that growing up, that's tough. But a lot of us did. And even if you didn't have that growing up, you've probably seen it in other families. Maybe you've been able to give it to your children as well. And you just understand. Ancient Hebrews recognized this difference the difference between mothers and fathers and how they loved. And they actually coded that difference into their very language. And Hebrew is a different, such a different language than, than English or even Greek or any Western language. It's what's called a root and pattern system. 
And so there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each one of them has a name. Each one of them has a meaning. And you create words, a first a root, by putting two letters together, and then you put a third letter together, and that's called the child root, and then you put a fourth letter together, and that's an actual word. And so everything is based on those roots and on that pattern. And so there is meaning that runs through the root to the child root to the word that carries through because of the meanings of the root letters. And so, yeah, that's maybe more information than you needed right now. But just as a little background, so the word for father is the first two letters of the alphabet, Aleph and Bet. Aleph was really originally in the pictogram system. It was a picture of an ox's head because that was the largest and strongest domestic animal that these people knew. And so what does Aleph mean? Our letter A. It means strong. It means the, the, the greatest of any one thing. It can also mean the greatest in a, in a plural sense of, of, of a group of things. And so it means strength, and it means oneness and unity. It means all those things. When you match it with bait, Aleph, bait, ab, father, bait is house. So it literally means strong house. And the idea here is that the father was the one who gave strength to the house, gave shape to the house. The father was the administrator. He was the, the leader. He was the one who was the procurer. He was the one who kept everything running on time. He was the tent pole that held up the tent that gave the space for the family in which to live. Now, mother was M, also Aleph, but pronounced as E, as E. And then Mem, our letter M, which means water. And even our letter M still carries the shape of the ripples on the water, doesn't it? Kind of interesting how these things have traveled down for thousands of years. Literally, M means strong water. What in the heck is that all about? When the Hebrews were tanning the hides that were part of their, their life and livelihood, they would boil them in pots of water. And as they would boil the hides, a lot of the resins and the... the substance would float to the top as a white sticky substance and they would scrape that off and use it literally as glue as an adhesive for things that they needed strong water was that that sticky substance that glue as the father was understood as the strength of the house the mother was understood as the glue that holds the family together and how about you but that is just beautiful and it so captures the roles between mother and father the father being the king, the father being the executor, the father being the administrator, the one who is the lawgiver, the one who's, who holds standards that keeps the family strong, but the mother being the one that gives a heart to the home, binds the family together in relationship. And since we as Westerners naturally think dualistically in an either-or sort of way, as things being um, diametrically opposed, Hebrews think of things in a unity, everything connected, everything in a complementary fashion. And so father and mother are not either-or propositions. They are meant to be understood as a unified whole, as a complementary union. It's not either-or, it's both-and. And the house was defined as the complement between strong house and strong water and everything that went on. We find this going through all of Hebrew con conception, so good and evil are not diametrically opposed and, and polar opposites. But the idea of ripeness and unripeness and a continuum that runs between the two, light and dark, nura and hoshech, same idea, 
There's a continuum between light and darkness and a complement between day and night, between Yama and Layla, where there is this natural oscillation that needs to happen between light and dark, a time for going out in, in, a, in a masculine sense of, of, of father and straight lines and clarity and, and times for getting things done and, and appropriating things. And then that time in the evening of curved energies, of assimilation and, and retros, introspection, even retrospection, those more feminine energies. And so they saw these things as compliments, one thing moving through a spectrum. So father and mother were understood the same way, between clarity and mysterious. You could probably look at dogs and cats the same way, can't you? You know, there's a continuum between the two. But the idea is that these seemingly polar opposites function as one, function as a unity. And what about God? How do they look at God? And why is it important that we understand how the Hebrews looked at God? Because we're reading their scriptures. We are using their scriptures as the basis of our faith. It's important for us to know what they thought as they put this into their language. We look at God as our father. We look at God as male. Jews called God their father as well. But did they think of him as male? In the, uh, the most central prayer in Judaism, uh, it's called the Shema. And it's coming from Deuteronomy 6. But Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. It literally means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, Echad, one. That idea of oneness, but not a single oneness, but multiple things functioning as one. This father and mother unity was Echad in the same way. God was Echad, not male and not female but the complement of both energies at the same time. Obviously, even though God was anthropomorphized in the Old Testament, and usually as a, as a male, we don't realize how much he was also, he, she, was also anthropomorphized as female. And they understood both of those present at the same time, that it was necessary for both types of energy, both types of love to be present in any kind of balance the balance between strong house and strong water, a perfect marriage, was really what was in the minds of those Hebrews as they were writing these scriptures. Now, for us, our mother, our mother God, that is really difficult for us to culturally to swallow, right? But let's take a look at Proverbs, right at uh, first Proverbs, first uh, chapter, at verse 20. And I know you don't have them up on the uh, screens, and you probably don't have time to get them in your Bible, but if you do and you want to go to Proverbs 1, go to verse 20, and you will read, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Wisdom here is being anthropomorphized, personified as female, as she Chokhmah, she, a feminine word, personified as female. And this is what the Jews did so often for the different attributes of God that they saw as either masculine or feminine. When God was looked at as king, he was looked at as male. But when God was looked at as wisdom, he was seen as female. The word for spirit, ruach in Hebrew, rucha in Aramaic, that's a feminine word. Both words are feminine. Malkutha, which means kingdom, 
feminine. The Holy Spirit is really she, not he. And the kingdom is really the queendom, if you want to be technical about it. But rather than seeing these things as trying to change our cultural understanding, understand that they are seeing those aspects of love coming in experience in different ways. Spirit was experienced as feminine, as that kind of love coming from mother, as that kind of energy. Kingdom was experienced in exactly the same way. What was going on here in their minds? What were they trying to tell us? Well, they're trying to tell us, first of all, that we obviously like to live in our heads, and even more so now in modern Western culture. But knowledge is something that's accomplished. Knowledge is something that's acquired and gained. It is that male activity, that I should say maybe masculine activity of father, right? Wisdom, on the other hand, is experienced. That's feminine. It's a deeper kind of knowing. You talked about the fact that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad, right? There's another old saying that I like to, to tell at this time of the year is that knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. Knowledge is having a lot of things to say. Wisdom is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. The idea here is that wisdom is something that can be acquired. Out of a book, it can be transferred from one person to another. Wisdom is not that way. Wisdom cannot be acquired. Wisdom cannot be purchased at any price. Wisdom can only be experienced over time by each one of us, and usually through the most difficult circumstances that we will face. Then we have an application to the things that we know, an application to the knowledge. But what the Jews were telling us is that all of that experience, that wisdom that we acquire, that's Mother God. That's feminine. That is experienced in a very different way than just the book learning that there is a, a softness, a mercy, and a compassion that is involved in wisdom and these aspects of God's spirit or kingdom that you're not going to find when you're just seeing God as just, seeing God as sovereign, seeing God as lawgiver. Those are also essential aspects of who God is. But if they're not balanced, everything starts to fall apart in either direction. We need the balance. Take a look at Hosea, if you can, Chapter 11. How fast can you get to Hosea chapter 11 from a standing stop? Right at verse 1. This is where God is going to be anthropomorphized again as mother. The Lord says, and this is the Lord talking directly to the people, when Israel was a child. So Israel is now being personified as a child, but the Lord is going to be personified as mother. Listen, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them near to me with affection and love. I drew them near to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. Could there be any more tender, any more compassion in it, any more motherly 
depiction of God's love for his people. Feminine, understanding this. God was often anthropomorphized this way, personified this way, because the people understood that he was both. We have separated and only fixated on God as Father, which keeps him distant, which makes it hard for us to believe that he can really like us this way, to hold us close, to hold us to his cheek, to teach us to walk, to be with us through the most intimate things. One of the names of God is El Shaddai, and it's usually translated as Mighty One. But you know what it really means? And this is where I get in trouble with sometimes. Shad in, in Hebrew is the word for breast. It's the word for teat on, on the animal. El Shaddai is literally mighty breast or mighty teat. Why would the people refer to God that way? That almost sounds blasphemous to us. Because they saw him as that motherly provider, the one who suckles them and holds them close. Hebrews don't have any of the compunctions that we have about drawing this kind of imagery around their God. They were an earthy people. They leaned into life, and they understood their God this way. They understood their scriptures this way. We are the ones who have trouble with it because we've separated these things out. And we ask ourselves, how can God be both father and mother at the same time? How is that even possible? Maybe you're asking yourself that right now. That just is pinging you back and forth. You've got to land somewhere, right? But if you think about it, isn't the earth both round and flat at the same time? I mean, we thought the earth was flat for, for what, millennia? Until finally we were able to figure out that it's a sphere. So the earth is a sphere. It is round in fact. But it's flat in experience, isn't it? Every day that you walk around, we build our lives on the fact that the land is flat, that the earth is flat. If it wasn't level, if it wasn't flat, how in the world would we be able to do the things that we do on a daily day basis? We know that it's round, but we live as if it's flat. God is father in fact, but he's mother in every day-to-day experience we have with her. And if he is not, our, our pronouns fail us here, if he, she is not mother in experience, then we have kept him distant. We won't really ever know that God likes us beyond his love for us, and the fear will remain. This is a change that Jesus was trying to get. He called his father Abba, which was something unheard of in his culture, to call him by the name that little children called their father, which was this, this, this intimate term of endearment. Abba, Daddy, Emma, Ima, Mother, Mommy. That's what the children used. For him to use that was signaling this kind of intimacy. But he wouldn't have had that intimacy with his Father God if he hadn't experienced it also in his Mother God. Maybe with his own mother Mary, maybe that was where he experienced God's motherly love and understood that the same thing was in place. But the prophets before him knew the same thing. And if you look at Jesus' ministry and you look at the way that he worked with every single person, he always led with mother's love, not father's love. What does father's love look like? Father's love looks like justice. It looks like balance. It looks like adherence to standards. 
Our fathers, even our earthly fathers, are the ones that push us to standards, don't they? And if you've had a very either successful father or an accomplished father or one who has very high standards for himself, then you know what it's like to live in a house like that where the father sets the same standards for the children. That's his way of expressing love. And there's absolute value in that. We need that. But if it's not balanced with mother's love, which just accepts first without any adherence to standards, without any prerequisites, then how are we going to trust that God really likes us? Jesus led with compassion. Jesus led with acceptance. In that break, in that line between Mark 1 and Mark 2, if you want to go to Mark 1, just go to the last section and cross the the bar line over into Mark 2. Jesus does three things in succession. And when you see things being put together in in a context within the scripture, pay attention to that. That positioning is not coincidental. That positioning means that these things are seen as a block. There's a relationship between them, and we're supposed to understand them in that light. Jesus heals a leper. He heals a paralytic, and he calls Levi to be one of his followers who was a tax gatherer. But he does it in a very specific way. When he approaches the the leper, the leper says to him, you know, if you want to, if you're willing, you can heal me. And what does Jesus do? The first thing he does is reach out and touch him. That breaks a ritual boundary, a ritual barrier in his culture. You could not touch the unclean person. You had to stay separate from them. To touch him made you unclean. Now Jesus would have had to go through the cleansing ritual and go to the temple and be declared clean by the priest. But he touches him first, and then he heals him after. The acceptance, the touch, the the drawing in preceded anything else that he did with that man. Amazing. To break that barrier, to, to break through his own fear of catching that disease. Now, I'm not drawing any, con, you know, any comparisons to what we're doing now. I'm just saying the acceptance, the mother's love came first. When he's teaching in a very crowded home and there is no way that the friends of a man who is paralyzed can get him in to see Jesus, they go up to the roof and they cut a hole through the roof and they lower him down on cords. And as he's lowering down, you know, everybody is just kind of blown away. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. He uses the same word for this this paralyzed man that he's never met before, possibly. I mean, we're not told that he knows him. He uses the same word for him that he uses for his closest friends and followers. And they're outraged. He calls him son. We don't even know him. You only use that word for those that you really know, that you really like. He brings him in. He calls him son because people would have understood in that culture that if this man was paralyzed, there was a reason that he was paralyzed. He sinned. Someone in his family sinned. There was generational sin. There was some reason that he had this infirmity. And Jesus just calls him family. Jesus brings him into his own embrace. And then, of course, he heals him afterwards. But he breaks that barrier as well. And when he's walking by the, the crossroads uh, on one of the commercial thoroughfares, the tax gathering booth is sitting right there at the crossroads, and there's Levi doing his job. And as he's passing by, kind of over his shoulder, he says, hey, follow me. A tax gatherer in that society was, 
worse than a pedophile in ours. You have to understand what a Jew thought of one of their own who would collaborate with the Romans to excise taxes out of them. They would have nothing to do with him. Jesus calls him before he had made any change in his life. And not only that, Levi is so excited to be accepted by this sage, this, this holy man, that he blurts out and invites him to dinner, and Jesus actually accepts, which is even more egregious in that culture. For him to sit at table, lie at table, was an implied treaty, an implied contract between them. Jesus leads with the mother's love. He leads with acceptance first. He lets people know that just as they are, they are drawn in to a relationship. And then father comes later. The teaching comes later. The connection is first. The teaching is later. The standards are applied later. All of that father stuff comes after mother. That's it. We can't be healthy in any other way. We can't be healthy unless we understand that we're accepted first. And then, and only then, can we adhere to what we're trying to adhere. Connection. We don't understand this, that compassion comes before justice. Mother comes before father. Acceptance comes before the standards and the law. But Jesus is showing us that every step of the way. Now, as I mentioned, some of us haven't grown up with a mother's love. We haven't grown up with that experience. We don't know what it's like to be accepted just because we're breathing, right? And if we don't have that experience anywhere in our lives, life is going to be really frightening. Life is going to be difficult to negotiate. Life is going to be lived at, at a much more defensive level because we feel we have to protect ourselves every step of the way. The memory of our mother's love the memory of our mother's acceptance is the counterweight. It's the balance to difficult life. And life is difficult. Life does hurt. We need our Father to push us to the standards so that we can grow and learn and, and do the things that we need to do in our own homes. But only when it's balanced with mother's acceptance can we face life on life's terms and understand that we are still accepted. And without that balance, it's almost impossible to believe that God really likes us, that God takes any pleasure in us, that God can't wait to see us. And it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. If we're only looking at Father as God, then that's all we're ever going to experience of him. We will never allow ourselves to experience her, her love, the way Jesus was always leading with that love first. This is why we stress the contemplative life. What is contemplation? But it's the stepping away from the intellectual thought stream. It's stepping away from all of that processing, all of that uh, calculation that we do to try to work our way through life and, and figure everything out all of that father stuff, to step away from that. Because as long as we, we remain in our heads, as long as we remain in our intellect, we're only experiencing God as father. It's only when we step away from that and we just become part of the moment and we let that moment be enough. We let everything that we've done to that moment be enough and just accept the moment 
then we start to feel the acceptance of Mother God's love. This is why this is so important. Only when we silence our thoughts and just live our moments do we meet Mother God. Do we meet the God who likes us just as we are and can't wait to see us? So maybe you're asking, what does that really look like? What does Mother God really look like? Well, I think Jesus expressed it most beautifully in the, the parable of the prodigal son. But it's hard for us even to interpret the prodigal son from our point of view and looking at God as father. And obviously, this is a story of a father with two sons, right? And so we look at him still as father. But really, do you know what prodigal means? We always think of prodigal as meaning the one who went away, you know, the, the absent one. But no, the prodigal, or prodigal means extravagant, actually extravagantly wasteful, someone who just pours out a bunch of stuff. Now, it's, it's applied to the son because he got his father's inheritance and went out and, and was wasteful and extravagant with it until he was penniless and decides to come back. But really, that's not the point of the, of the story. If you really look at the point of the story, it's not the son who is the prodigal. It's the father who is the prodigal. The father is the extravagant one. The father is the one who pours everything out in what the elder brother sees as a wasteful way on his younger brother who didn't deserve it. This idea of extravagant love and pouring out. Or as one scholar put it that I think was the perfect way, the story of the prodigal son is really the story of when dad acts like mom. What happens when dad acts like mom? <laughs> what does that look like? I want you to do a little exercise again with me. If you close your eyes and think about someone that you've lost, or some maybe it's a pet that you've lost, anything, anyone that you loved and you've lost them. When my oldest daughter was about two years old, she was a little Houdini a little escape artist. She could get out of her crib in ways that I knew not how. I had to try to wedge her door shut so that she would stay in her room. And yet she always found a way to get out. And there was one afternoon, I got home from work, I was alone with her, I put her down for a nap and I was trying to clean the house or do what I was doing. And as I was just busy doing that, all of a sudden I realized it was too quiet. She wasn't in the room. I looked all over the house. She wasn't in the house. I went out to the gated front yard area. She wasn't there. And I realized with horror, somehow she got out through the first gate, the, the front gate. Now, I don't know if you can, if you've felt what that feels like. You probably have. As soon as you realize that person is gone, that person's at risk, it's like all the blood drains out of your face. You can feel it draining out of your face and out of your hands. That's an actual physiological thing that happens. When we go into fight or flight and the fear hits us, our body drains all the blood from the extremities away from the skin so that it's going to our muscles and our organs where we need it so that we can fight or flight. Also away from our skin so if we get cut, we don't bleed much. And you can feel that draining. And I felt that that fear, that draining sensation. And I went out and I was running up and down the street frantically looking for her. And then finally a neighbor came around the corner with her. She was already a block away. That feeling of loss, that feeling of near panic, 
I can't imagine what that would feel like for a child who was kidnapped, a child who ran away, and the parent is left with that feeling. And it doesn't go away in 15 minutes like it did for me. There's that first sleepless night that you have to spend, and then the next one, and the one after that, and the wondering of where they are, who they're with, if they're safe. When will you see them again? If you can imagine, or if you have experienced what that feels like, that longing to see your loved one again, that desire to hold them again, that knowing that you would do anything to have them back at your side. If you can feel that, if you can put yourself into that position, now you can begin to understand the point of the prodigal son. The father gives the inheritance to his son that he didn't deserve and that was absolutely unlawful. But he's feeling that loss and it never goes away. Every day he's looking for his son. You can imagine him every day scanning the horizon to see if he's going to be coming back and he's got that feeling. He's not thinking about what his son did wrong. He's not worried about what he might have wasted of his inheritance that the family wasn't going to get. All he cares about is to have his son back. And when he sees him actually crest the hill and start coming down the path, you can imagine that strangled cry that must have come out of his throat. And he bolts out the door and starts running toward him, has to pull up his robes in order to be able to run faster, doing everything that a father should not do. First of all, to give the inheritance to his son. Second of all, to be running. Hebrew patriarchs didn't run. That was unseemly. They didn't show their skin. He's got his robes pulled up over his knees. That was embarrassing. And to welcome back this boy who had done everything wrong, who now stands in front of him smelling a pig excrement and sweat, and yet when he gets to him, he not only embraces him, he throws himself around his neck is the way that the scripture describes it and doesn't kiss him once. It's that he couldn't stop kissing him. If we can put ourselves into that emotional place, we understand what Jesus is trying to get across here in the most shocking way to his first listeners, to understand that God likes us that much that God misses us that much, that there is nothing that God won't do for each one of us to ensure that we will stand by his side, that there is no party that he won't throw, that there's no celebration without us present. When dad acts like mom, this is the picture. This is what it looks like. This is who our God is. But if we can't make the switch from Father God to Mother God, if we can't understand that there is this unbridled love and affection for us, then we are going to go through life in a defensive mode, always trying to protect the love, the relationship, maybe the inheritance that we think is due us in some sort of theological way, but that is not getting across to us in a real way. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that for God, there's no party until we come home. There's no celebration without you, you, without me. 
And until we get that first glimpse of how Father God acts like mom and how Father God leads with mother's love, then we're never going to know perfect love. And if we don't have a glimpse of that perfect love, then the fear remains. No matter how much we know God loves us until we experience him liking us in those moments when we just let go and just let ourselves be, we're always going to be looking through the prism of fear. And that changes the nature of our relationship with each other and with our God. This Mother's Day, let's see if we can turn this at least around enough that we can get that first glimpse of our Mother God, of God loving us in the way that hopefully our mothers loved us when we were small. But if we didn't have that imprint, to see it in the people around us, to see how it does play out in human form so that we can understand the only reason it can possibly be present anywhere in our lives is because God loved us first. Let's pray. Father, we want to hold up all of our mothers to you. We want to celebrate them. We want to tell you and everybody about our gratitude for our mothers, what they've sacrificed, what they've given, how much of their lives they put on hold in order for us to get a launching pad for our own. Thank you for being our mother as well, Lord, for loving us in the best possible way that we could be loved by our earthly mothers with that kind of absolute acceptance, with that extravagance, even that wastefulness. Help us in our relationship both with our mothers and with our children to better understand the love that you have for us. Help us to see it, see it in action, and then to understand that your unseen love is exactly the same as that, but perfected. We don't want to live in fear anymore, Lord. We want to be wary and intelligent and safe and responsible, but to do all of that without the fear, without the anxiety or the worry that tears our relationships down, disallows us from being, being able to enter into our lives deeply. So this Mother's Day, Father, help us to bring all this to mind and to start to see you as Jesus showed us leading with mother, leading with compassion and acceptance, and then help us to do exactly that for every single person we meet so we understand that if this love can leave us in the direction of someone who probably doesn't even deserve it, it's only because it has come from you first. That's the beauty of your love. Father, thank you. Never let us forget, as we've been saying, that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. All right, this is the time to take virtual hands. And uh, for the few of us here in the room, you can do that too if you want to, or you can remain socially distant, whatever you want to do. But virtual hands at least, 
as we ask, Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for another great Sunday morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. And we'll see you next Tuesday at 6.30 on the little screen, Wednesday at 6.30, and then back here Sunday morning to stream. Have a great week and a great rest of Mother's Day.